So I saw a video the other day of three men breaking into an older woman's house. And presumably, it seemed like a really good idea to them at the time. She's on her own. There's three of them. She looks somewhat frail. They look pretty strong and powerful. But what they could not foresee was that she would grab an ancient-looking fouling piece of some kind and blast one of them in the backside with it. And then the video ends as they all flee screaming, and she just mutters a few withering remarks. My favorite viewer comment on YouTube said, well, that's what you get. If you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. And I liked it so much, I made it the sermon title for today. <laughs> Here's the problem. Any one of us in this room is capable of thinking like those guys. Uh, we are, I'm pleased to say, highly unlikely to do what they did, but we're not far off the same mindset. Even sometimes in church, we think like they do. We've been looking at examples of this all summer long, what it looks like when people do what is wise or right in their own eyes. Uh, they chose gods for themselves. They chose men for themselves. They chose tactics of various kinds that made sense to them at the time, maybe even felt holy to them at the time, but they were brazen when they should have been humble, and they were often afraid when they should have been bold, and we all do this. I've confessed it, so has Ben. We all have this tendency to do what is right in our own eyes and then to see later if God happens to agree with us. So what if you're in the middle of making a really stupid mistake and your eyes are opened to that right in the middle of it? Is there any way out? Or are you doomed to collect your stupid prize? Well, all the preaching textbooks tell you when you open with a question like that, what you need to do is hold off answering it as long as possible. That way no one can leave. Uh, unfortunately, the answer to the question, if you've done something dumb, are you destined to receive the dumb prize, uh, comes in the very first verse. And in this church, we just preach the word of God. So here's the answer. Judges 11.29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. So there's the answer. Even though his selection as a leader was 100% the fruit of human schemes, see the last two sermons, God still redeems him and equips him and uses him for good. Therefore, God can save anyone from any sin at any time. Amen. Sermon over. Uh, however, and that would suffice as a sermon, but... No sooner is Jephthah put right by God through grace than by himself he goes all wrong again. So he's a goof up, God sets him right, he goes wrong again. In the very next verse, verse 30, we read this. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Now he didn't need to, right? We've established that in verse 29. God places his Holy Spirit upon him. This guarantees success. This anointing of his work by God guarantees success. So Jephthah has absolutely no need to add a vow. But for some reason, he feels the need to. He feels he must. Now, perhaps it just felt to him, I'm speculating, that it would be holier 
if he made a, a vow. Uh, maybe uh, his past and the things he's done is sort of still plaguing his conscience and he feels like he sort of needs to make it up to God a bit with some things of his own. Uh, maybe it's just a plain old lack of faith and you know, either way, whatever it is, he says to himself, I need to do something extra, something costly, something difficult and, and, and religious and holy and important and serious to make sure that God comes through. I must add some work of my own to the grace of God in order to guarantee the win. That's what he thinks. This is the very same stupidity that robs an old lady's house. The only difference being that this stupidity looks holy. It looks religious. To put yourself in God's hands like this and to say, I am willing to pay whatever the cost, blank check, looks devout. But it's incredibly stupid because God never asked for it. In fact, it's just another myopic human scheme that looks right in his eyes but is not right in the eyes of God. Our articles of religion, the 39 articles to be found at the Book of Common Prayer, describe religious works like this as in fact having the likeness or nature of sin. If you perform holy deeds to manipulate God and get him to do what you want for you, you are in danger of becoming devoutly sinful as well as devoutly stupid. Here's the vow, verse 30 and 31. He says this to God. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, we have no way of knowing what it was he thought would come out of his house, but when he says it... We can assume it was a thing, you know, a bird, a chicken or something, maybe, come out of the primitive house, a sheep, a goat. Worst case scenario, the fatted calf. It should have been tied up, but maybe, you know, it could break loose and come out. Anyway, he reasons whatever it is that comes out, chicken, goat, sheep, cow, it's going to be worth it if this guarantees the win, if his devout act of religious piety and holiness secures the win, human logic, God won't come through unless I do the right thing first, well, then it's worth it. God is on the hook, you see, because I've handed him a blank check, I've done the right thing, so now God owes me. They have the fight, they win, and in verse 34 we read, then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, uh, when the Bible, by the way, whenever it says behold, it's one of my favorite words, it means slow down, zoom in, take a careful look at the verses that are right there, at a granular level, pass every word. Behold means with, there's something in the detail that we need to know. Behold, his daughter came out to meet him. The first he sees is not an it, it's a she. The tambourines and dances, there's the behold, tambourines and dances, picture it, get into the feel of it, what's she thinking, what's he thinking, why is she doing this, why the celebration, build the picture, she's young, she's proud of her dad, she's glad to see him, she's thrilled that he's home, she's impressed with the victory, 
And I just think about all the times I've come home. You're meant to. And my daughter has greeted me when I've come in, when she's been pleased to see me. Now, she's not always. <laughs> Most often, when she sees me, the first thing she says is, where's mum? <laughs> but, uh, but for sometimes, when, I, when I've been away a long time, uh, she's very pleased to see me. She's missed me, and, and uh, I, I love that. And I was going through some old files this week, and I found a drawing in the file. I found a little drawing she'd done for me in the file. I don't know, uh, for all those traveling, if you can see this online, I love my daddy. Uh, there's a picture of both of us there. She said I could share this. I'm not going to just embarrass my family, uh, at least not, not on purpose. But uh, it's got to be eight years old. You can tell it's old because in this drawing I've still got hair. And uh, it says, I love my daddy. Let's not lose that. And uh, why do I keep this? Why do I keep this drawing? Like, it's been cut with a bit of scissors and stuff. And it's like, you know, it's not even very good. But why do I keep it? Because there's few things more valuable to me in all of this world than my family. I love them. When scripture says, behold, slow down, zoom in, it's inviting us to go through our files and find those old pictures our kids did and and, and feel what it feels like to get a hug from a five-year-old. And then scripture, as it has us slow down, twists the knife just makes it worse. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither daughter, neither son nor daughter. Which is what only child means, by the way. (laughs) Why waste the ink? Because God wants you to slow down, and he wants to twist the knife. He wants you to feel how awful this is. He wants you to see the cost and feel the cost and see how deadly the prize of stupid schemes can really be. It's not just the stupid games like the guys in the video on YouTube are playing that win a stupid prize, but even devoutly stupid games like the ones we play in church. It's been a motif of this book of Judges that quite often the consequences of our sin fall upon the heads of those we were meant to protect. It's our children and their children and their children, as we've been singing in that hymn. Verse 35. As soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. Oh, yeah, it's all about you, isn't it, Jephthah? A heart goes out to you. And you have become the cause of great trouble to me, so it's her fault, apparently. What an egotist. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, bit of honesty now, it was in fact me that got us into this mess, and I cannot take back my vow. More devout stupidity. Jephthah reasons, from what he can see of God, that it would be sinful of him to renege on his vow. Is it true? Is he correct? When you've played a sinful game, are you doomed to receive the sinful prize. Well, let's use some human logic first. He's good at scheming. That's his forte. Scheme man. Uh, What if he traded himself? That's an option. Uh, What if he offered someone else? What if he said, there's this bloke down the pub that I don't really like. God, can you take him instead? Uh, What if he just flat out lied to God and said, nope, never saw her? 
First thing I saw when I came home was a flower. You can have that God. But he doesn't. What if he did some theology? It's a good place to be. What if he studied Israel's past and he said, well, look, God's people sinned when they chose me. And yet God rescued them from their sin nonetheless. What if he studied his own past? When it says in verse 3 that worthless fellows collected around him, that means he was just like the guys in the YouTube video. He was a gangster, the leader of the gang, a robber. What if he said, I sinned before, I was a total mess, and yet God anointed me with his spirit nonetheless. And therefore, now that I've sinned again, maybe God will rescue me again and preserve my daughter's life. What if he did some theology? Just in his head. What if he studied the word of God? This idea that once you've made a mistake, you are doomed or destined to collect the stupid prize and suffer the consequences of your sin is exactly the kind of idea you will get into your head if you do not read this book. You won't find that idea in here. It's a long book with lots of complicated things to say and some very simple things also. You won't find that idea in here at all. Quite the opposite. We're told in verse 38, there's a two-month hiatus while she mourns. And Kat and I were just wondering yesterday, what happened in that time? What did he do? Where did he go for two months? We don't know. No idea. Did he talk to anyone? Did anyone call him on his sin? Did anyone ask him to have a second think? Or were they all too afraid of this geezer? Did they just assume maybe that he was being really holy? Were they impressed by this vow and his willingness to see it through? Wow, look at him. He's really devout. He must really love God if he's willing to kill his daughter. Wow, he must be a really holy dude. Was he isolated? Was he on his own? Was he preaching to himself from his own head? Was he giving doom oracles to himself and wallowing in it instead of sitting under the lively oracles of God and hearing from his friends about what this book says? I say to you, saints, collect around yourself valuable fellows. Collect around yourself those who love you enough to bring the word of God to bear on your life. And if they see you in the middle of a mistake, who will be willing to call you on that mistake, and then having done so, give you the good news. Who will correct your eyesight with the word of God. Get in a small group. We've got 13 options in this church. Home groups, women's, men's, mops, mips, Blornox, Longwood, children, youth, choir, and adult forum. Pick one. Pick two. Had he done that? Had Jephthah humbled himself and told his church of his stupid vow, told his friends of the mess he'd made, that he'd made a mistake, that he didn't know what to do, that he'd run out of schemes, that he'd put himself on the hook for something absolutely tragic, someone might have said to him, um... I got something. I've got an idea. Get a load of this. Leviticus 5. I'll edit for us because it's pretty long. If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil, when he realizes his guilt, that is to say his eyes are opened mid-stupid scheme, 
and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord two turtle doves or two pigeons. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. One, God will never hold you to keep a vow if to do so would be more evil than to break it. He's good. He isn't going to delight in something sinful like this. Two, if it looks like there's no way out, there is. There's always a way out. Always with God. Always. There is an escape from the consequences of our sin. He will always provide a way. And the irony here, of course, the horrible irony here, is that to get out of this trap, all he has to do is offer the thing he was hoping to get away with in the first place. A sheep or a goat. And if he can't afford it, then a bird. Amazing. If he knew the word, or if he just let a few people in who knew the word, he would have known he could keep his daughter and the cow. Could have had it all. The tragedy, you see, of Jephthah is not the vow. The tragedy is that he kept it. That's the tragedy. He refused the grace of God. It's the same for us. Just as Jephthah had available to him under the law a substitutionary sacrifice to bear the cost of his mistakes and to take away the sin and to set him free, so do we in Christ Jesus. Amplius, far more. You could have gotten yourself into really deep trouble and still be set free by grace alone. Freedom is completely free. To prove just how infinite the free grace of freedom really is. In the end, it seems like Jephthah actually received it. This is wild. Uh, I'm thankful to Jenna Hughes and Chris Kahn for pointing this out. Ben and I, we prepared this series like five or six months ago, studied everything, spoke about it for an hour a week on the podcast, and completely missed an important point. Well, they saw it because you need to be in a small group. You can't see it all. Jephthah is commended in the New Testament as a good guy. Not because he did good or was good or thought good, clearly not, but simply because he had some faith. This is the good news. You can spend your whole life playing a devoutly stupid game, a devoutly sinful game. You can be absolutely committed to the full horrors of sin in all of its death and squalor for a very, very long time. And maybe even be playing multiple sinful games at once in different arenas of your life. And let everyone down around you. And at the same time, make everyone around you think that you're being holy. And yet, still avoid the penalty of your sin. When you stop trying to save yourself. And you receive the unlimited grace of Christ. Who atones for you. And steps into your place. And sets you free through his life. That's the story of Jephthah. It could be our story. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, thank you for this wild story and for its ending. And uh, Thank you for this book of Judges and uh, the ending of this series. And Lord, as we wrestle with our own propensity to sin and sin again, and uh, perhaps our propensity 
to try and look as though we're doing the opposite of that. I pray that we'd be uh, a people who are willing just to lay that bare before you, and maybe even before a few trusted friends, and to receive a word of grace, a word of release. And as we come before your table, I thank you that you assure us in those lively tokens of bread and wine that we are recipients of such grace. In Jesus' name, amen.